Hey everybody, welcome back to the Curiosity Chronicles. Jumping into a new topic today, talking about the Louisiana Purchase and the Core of Discovery, as it's officially known. Unofficially and more famously known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition. This one's for you, Jeff. Hope you're listening. Hope you enjoy it. A little shout out to a friend here. And hopefully everybody else listening enjoys it as much as I did as well. Now this first episode is not all of the Lewis and Clark expedition. It's mostly the background information. A little bit shorter episode, hopefully. Give you the background of some of the major players. The preparation for the journey. Next episode will be actually the journey itself. And all the ins and outs of the expedition in the process of exploring the Louisiana Purchase. So I hope you have fun. Got a lot of good information. Should be a fun couple episodes here. So I'm excited to get to it. My name is Brett Bilesma. I am the host of the Curiosity Chronicles. And this is what I was curious about this month. So if we're going to talk about the Lewis and Clark expedition, the obvious starting point is to talk about who were Lewis and Clark. So we're going to start with Meriwether Lewis, just a little bit of an overview of his early life before he was selected to lead this expedition. He was born on August 18, 1774 in Virginia, born to William Lewis and Lucy Meriwether, who were somewhat related, I believe there was some sort of cousin, and Meriwether had an older sister named Jane and a younger brother named Reuben. So Meriwether, I don't know what the tradition was, but apparently he got his mother's maiden name as his first name, which I thought was odd. He grew up on Locust Hill, it's his family's plantation located in Ivy Creek, Virginia, and it's near Monticello, which is the home of Thomas Jefferson, of course, which is a little bit interesting considering how much their adult lives are in parallel with each other. They are intrinsically linked in later life. In 1779, Meriwether's father died while serving in the Continental Army. Meriwether barely knew his father. Since he was born, his father was pretty much gone for the vast majority of his young life fighting against the British, in the Revolutionary War. But his father was not killed in battle. He was visiting the family on leave in November of 1779, and after his leave was over, he was riding back to his unit, was attempting to cross the Ravana River, which is also in Virginia. The river was flooded, and his horse was swept away and drowned, but William Lewis was able to swim to the shore and get back to his family. But, unfortunately... He contracted pneumonia, and two days later, he died. Lucy remarried a man named John Marks and took her family to Georgia. However, in 1792, so quite a few years later, obviously, John Marks died and Meriwether returned to Virginia. He is now a young adult. Meriwether Lewis, under his uncle's supervision, managed the plantation at Locust Hill. When his father died... And eventually, when he became of age, Meriwether Lewis inherited about 2,000 acres 
24 slaves and all the plants and books and paperwork that has to go with running a plantation. It was all his. He wasn't... He didn't love running the plantation, it seems like. He did it, and he was good at it, but he was a more adventurous sort, clearly. So in... 1794, Meriwether Lewis joined the Virginia Militia during the Whiskey Rebellion, and then in 1795, he enlisted in the official army to fight against the Miami tribe in the Northwest Indian War against Chief Little Turtle. Army life agreed with Meriwether Lewis. He advanced fairly quickly. In 1795, he was an ensign, ensign, excuse me, or an ensign. I'm terrible at pronouncing things. Lieutenant in 1799, and then he was promoted to captain in 1800. And that's when his career really took off, because in 1801, President Thomas Jefferson asked Meriwether Lewis to be his personal secretary and aide-de-camp. And that's a little bit where we can end the early life of Meriwether Lewis, because as we go on, you're going to see all the events that happen from 1801 on. So we got to talk about William Clark. William Clark, born August 1, 1770 in Virginia, a little bit older than Meriwether Lewis. He was the ninth out of ten children born to John and Ann Clark. Big family. Also born on a tobacco plantation. But in 1785, the family relocated to Kentucky. And William Clark had a lot to live up to. His brother was a hero of the American Revolution. And so William followed in his brother's footsteps and joined the army, albeit it was after the Revolutionary War, of course, because he was quite young. He joined, just like Meriwether Lewis, he joined the militia in 1789 and later on enlisted in the regular army. And in 1792, he was commissioned as a lieutenant of infantry. Also participated in the American Indian conflicts, including the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794, but he resigned his commission in 1796 because his health was a little sketchy. He wanted to regain his own health, and he wanted to go back and manage the estates of his parents because they were getting a little bit older, and he wanted to take over and provide for the family. 1803, he's invited to join the Corps of Discovery by his friend Meriwether Lewis, and that's where we're going to get to a little bit more in this episode. So Lewis and Clark are the two major players in the expedition that now, of course, bears their name. The other major player, so to speak, is the land that they were actually going to go explore. We now know a good chunk of that land as the Louisiana Purchase. Of course, Lewis and Clark go beyond the Louisiana Purchase all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But the catalyst, so to speak, is the Louisiana Purchase. And it's important to understand the history of how that came about, what the Louisiana Purchase is so that we can understand in the early 1800s, especially where the president's mindset was and why it was so important to President Jefferson to explore that land. So the history of the Louisiana Purchase goes all the way back to the 17th century. During the 17th and 18th century, France had sent explorers and established settlements that gave them control of the Mississippi River. But not only just the river, it gave them control over most of the Mississippi River Valley. However, during the Seven Years' War in 1762, France gave Louisiana west of the Mississippi to Spain. 
And then in 1763, at the conclusion of the Seven Years' War, which in the United States, that theater of war in what now is the United States, I should say, in the colonies, the Seven Years' War is known as the French and Indian War. That's the theater within the Seven Year War that was fought on North American soil. France loses that war, and as a result, they cede almost all of their possessions in North America to Great Britain. However, this was temporary, because in 1800, Napoleon Bonaparte, now in power in France, convinced a, albeit reluctant, King Charles IV of Spain to sign what's known as the Treaty of San Ildefonso. Probably not pronouncing that right. This was a treaty, it's called a Treaty of Retrocession, which basically means they went backwards in time and gave Louisiana back to France in, trying to think how to describe this best. Basically, the same chunk of land that France had ceded to Spain in 1763 just reverted back to France from Spain now in 1800. Not much had changed. It basically just wiped out the original seeding. Said, nope, we're going back to 1763 and it's ours again. The Treaty of Retrocession was concerning to the U.S. government. Because not only did it give Louisiana back to France, it gave France the port of New Orleans as well. And over the last 12 years, Americans had been streaming west. They were going into the Cumberland. They were going into the Tennessee. They were going into the Ohio River Valleys. And these settlers relied on the Mississippi River and the free use of the river to exist. If they didn't have that river, they could not survive in those western frontier areas. Along with that was the use of the port of New Orleans. If they can't use New Orleans as the port to ship their goods back to the east, they don't make a livelihood and they probably either die or head back east and they can't live out in that land anymore. So it's concerning to the United States for a lot of reasons, but even more concerning was when Spain was in control of Louisiana in 1795, they had signed the Treaty of San Lorenzo with the U.S., that gave the U.S. the right to ship goods originating in American ports through the mouth of the Mississippi without having to pay any duties. And it also gave the U.S. the right to temporary storage of American goods in New Orleans for transshipment. So, lucrative trade deal for the United States. Basically, avoiding paying certain duties and also allowing them to store things in the port until they could ship them out. It's a merchant's dream. In 1802, Spain had revoked the right of deposit to the U.S. Tensions were high. Now, I say Spain had revoked the right of deposit, which is basically storage of goods, like I had mentioned. And you might be confused, like I was. You said, what? Spain is revoking the right, but Spain had given it back to France. Yes, it's a very muddy geopolitical situation at this point. Spain had ceded Louisiana back to the French, but in all reality, 
in terms of real-world power, Spain was still in control of New Orleans. So France owned it, Spain controlled it, and both of them were shutting out the U.S. The U.S., not happy about this. Not much they can do about it. So Jefferson, as the president, decides he's going to send people to France to negotiate. He sends Robert Livingston, the U.S. minister in Paris, to negotiate with France. And originally, the deal was for Livingston to go to France to try to purchase New Orleans. And that's it. Livingston was not really giving the time of day by Napoleon. Or his famous advisor, Talleyrand, who was originally the one that Livingston was going to try to talk to. Hopefully, hoping that Talleyrand could get him an audience with Napoleon. And they could go about negotiating a deal that was good news for everybody. Talleyrand did not give Livingston the time of day until the U.S. said they were considering a rapprochement with Great Britain. That was France's worst nightmare. Napoleon did not want the U.S. and Great Britain to be on good terms, or even potential allies against him. So as soon as Livingston kind of floated that idea in a very diplomatic way, suddenly he had all of France's attention. By the time Livingston was making these approaches to Napoleon, Napoleon had suffered some strategic setbacks. Originally, Napoleon wanted to send troops to conquer Santo Domingo, which is modern-day Hispaniola or uh, the island which contains the Dominican Republic and Haiti. There was fierce resistance from the locals on Hispaniola. There was disease, and basically the French army that Napoleon had sent was decimated. And Napoleon had given up after this decimation, basically given up on resurrecting France's New World Empire. just was not worth it. Along with this setback, tensions between France and Great Britain were building, like they always seem to do at this time period, and it was looking like war in 1803 between France and Great Britain was all but a certainty. War is very expensive. Napoleon already had financial difficulties at this point. So the noose is kind of tightening around Napoleon's neck, figuratively speaking. Later on, as the negotiations with Livingston are continuing, Jefferson sends him back up. He sends James Monroe to help with negotiations. And... When those negotiations start up with Livingston, Napoleon, and Monroe, Napoleon offered to sell to the United States not just New Orleans. He offers to sell them the entirety of the Louisiana Territory, which nobody expected. Livingston and Monroe had actually no authority to make that deal, but it was too good to pass up. They figure it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Let's do this. So a treaty was signed on May 2, but they backdated it to April 30. Basically, the treaty terms gave to the United States all of the Louisiana Territory in the form that France had received it from Spain. The price that they agreed on was $15 million, which 
averages to less than three cents per acre. Ridiculous steal of a deal. Like, unbelievable. To put it into perspective how good of a deal that was, Jefferson had given Livingston and Monroe instructions for the purchase of New Orleans. And obviously, in any negotiation, you start low. But Jefferson had authorized up to $10 million just for the port in the city of New Orleans. And now, they're looking at the entirety of the Louisiana Territory for $15 million. You can't beat that deal. Monroe and Livingston, blown away by this. They make the deal. They figure, we can get approval from Jefferson. The treaty will get signed. Let's do this. Livingston and Monroe make the deal. They take the deal back to the United States. The treaty that has been signed, of course, any treaty has to be approved by the Senate. The Senate overwhelmingly did so with a vote of 24 to 7, and the Louisiana Purchase was complete. Which is easy to say, but in actuality, the U.S. wasn't actually 100% sure what they had bought. The boundaries of the Louisiana Purchase were vague at best and weren't even finalized until about 1819, which is well after the Lewis and Clark expedition. But, for our purposes, since we are obviously well past 1819 and know the finalized borders, you can basically think of the Louisiana Purchase as the entirety of the land between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains, or the Stony Mountains as they were known back then, and obviously up to the Canadian border and down to basically the Gulf of Mexico. Eventually, the Louisiana Purchase became the states of Louisiana, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Oklahoma, as well as most of the states of Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and Minnesota. Huge chunk of land. Doubled the size of the United States in one go. Bang, just like that. So, Jefferson wants to explore it. Obviously, a lot of preparation has to go into that. It's basically what the rest of this episode is about, preparing for the journey. Thomas Jefferson had plans to explore the West before the Louisiana Purchase had ever happened, but the government just could not afford to fund an expedition when Jefferson had wanted to. However, things always change if there's competition involved, right? In the early 1790s, a Scottish man named Alexander Mackenzie enters the picture. Mackenzie was in the fur trade, and he worked for the Northwest Company. It was a private fur trading company based in Montreal. Now, Mackenzie was based near Lake Athabasca in northern Alberta in Canada, but he had dreamed of an expedition to the Pacific. So he tried in 1789, did not make it. So on May 9, 1793, Mackenzie sets out again with a fellow Scot, Alexander McKay, six French-Canadian voyagers, and two Indians. And a month later, he crossed the Continental Divide at a place that was just 3,000 feet in altitude, so not a huge mountain pass, just a low, lower area on the Continental Divide. Now, there's some mistakes made by Mackenzie. He gets to the Fraser Ridge... Fraser Ridge, good gravy. He gets to the Fraser River, which he mistakenly believed was a tributary of the Columbia, and he started to take the Fraser River, thinking it would lead to the Columbia, which would then lead to the Pacific. 
It obviously doesn't go that way, so he abandons the river voyage when it becomes impassable and decides to take an overland route. And in 13 days, his group makes it to Saltwater in an area in the northern parts of the Straits of Georgia, part of the Salish Sea, which is part of the Pacific Ocean in British Columbia. So basically, they make it to the Pacific Ocean, long story short. Now, using some homemade paint and inscribing on a rock, Mackenzie writes, Quote, Alexander Mackenzie from Canada by land at the 22nd of July, 1793, end quote. Now, in doing so, he's basically laying claim to the Northwestern Empire for the British. Later on in life, probably sometime in around 1801, Mackenzie, using a ghostwriter most likely, publishes the account of his journey. 1802, Jefferson and Lewis get a copy of this account and they read it with a lot of interest. And it was very shocking to Jefferson especially, but also Lewis, and very unwelcome that the British were exploring all the way to the Pacific. Now, on the plus side, the account of Mackenzie made it seem like the way to the Pacific was fairly easy. Jefferson and Lewis were under the impression that the Rocky Mountains were similar to the Appalachians in both height and breadth, so to speak. Like, not that impassable. Obviously, we know that this impression of the Rocky Mountains is incorrect, but Jefferson and Lewis have nothing to go on. Hardly anybody has gone over the Rocky Mountains and published it. They don't have anything to base their knowledge off of. It's just educated guesses at this point. There's a geographer-historian named John Logan Allen, wrote a book about the Lewis and Clark expedition. In the book, he said, quote, It was this simple fact of imaginary geography that gave birth to the Lewis and Clark expedition. End quote. Now, Lewis reads Mackenzie's account, and he sees it as a challenge. In his mind, anything the British can do, he can do better. His father had fought in the Revolution, remember. He's not a big fan of the British. And when I say British, obviously I'm encompassing... Scotland and the United Kingdom in that. I apologize to any of my listeners on the other side of the Atlantic. I know that uh, might be ruffling some feathers for the three of you that may be listening. (laughs) Self-deprecation, yay. Anyway, so Lewis wants a challenge. And he was also struck by the inscription that Mackenzie had painted on the rock. It was, to Lewis, a a thing of honor. It was a challenge. A Scotsman from Canada is making a bold claim on land that, in Lewis's mind, should be claimed by the United States. So they got to get that. They got to get there. They got to get moving. It was a warning. If the U.S doesn't get moving, they're going to lose the empire in the western part of the continent to British. So it's an honor thing, but it's also just a power and economics thing as well. Mackenzie started his journey as a business trip for the Northwest Company, but what it really did was light a fire under Jefferson and Lewis. The Northwest Company kind of, eh, don't care. Jefferson and Lewis, on the other hand, Definitely not the audience that Mackenzie was hoping to, I totally just forgot the word, inspire, thank you, there it is, 
That was not the audience he was looking to inspire, but that's exactly what happened. It's not known exactly when or how the decision was made, but sometime in the late summer of 1802, President Jefferson informed Captain Lewis, Captain Meriwether Lewis, that he would like him to lead an expedition to the Pacific. At least that's what we think happened. Maybe Lewis talked Jefferson into it. We don't know for sure. It was never recorded. No one really knows how Jefferson made the decision. He didn't ask for advice. He didn't consult anyone. He didn't ask for volunteers. Except for Lewis. But the decision was made. Let's go explore the West. Initially, and a lot of people at the same time, uh, that this was all happening. Contemporary people have pointed this out to Jefferson. Meriwether Lewis, Captain Meriwether Lewis, seemed like an odd choice to lead the expedition. He wasn't a scientist. Science and discovery would be a major part of the expedition. However, Jefferson had no question he had chosen the right man. This is a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Quote, it was impossible to find a character who, to a complete science in botany, natural history, mineralogy, and astronomy, joined the firmness of constitution and character, prudence, habits adapted to the woods, and a familiar familiarity with the Indian manner and character requisite for this undertaking. All the latter qualifications Captain Lewis has. End quote. High praise. All of that being said, however, Lewis was not totally ignorant of science. He has some learning, and maybe even more importantly than that, he had a very large capacity to learn. And with Jefferson being his teacher, Lewis learned a great deal of information needed for the journey in a short amount of time. He consulted maps, geographical books, he read Captain James Cook's A Voyage to the Pacific Ocean, he read Antoine Seymour Lepage du Prat's. That's just the worst pronunciation, I'm sure. He read that author's book, The History of Louisiana or of the Western Parts of Virginia and Carolina. End quote. He took botany lessons from Jefferson at Monticello, or they walked along the Potomac and did botany lessons on the Potomac. Jefferson, Lewis, Jefferson and Lewis worked out a secret code or a cipher so they could communicate in secret. At the time that they were planning this expedition, remember, they had not officially purchased the Louisiana Purchase, so they were planning on going into territories that were controlled by foreign lands, like Spanish territory. So they had code, so they could talk in secret. They talked about American Indians, they talked about flora and fauna, they talked about mountains, rivers, they discussed the size of the expedition, how many men would be too many and would alarm the Indian tribes. But on the flip side, how many men would be too few and invite an attack? Like they had to find that line. They talked about expectations, the need to bring back accurate records, descriptions, maps, everything they would need to further their knowledge of this new territory that they were in the process, hopefully, of purchasing, and of course, we know, eventually completed. So basically, Jefferson, in a very short amount of time, gave Lewis what amounts to a quote. Uh, this is a quote from uh, the book Ambrose wrote on Lewis and Clark. 
quote, an undergraduate's introduction to the liberal arts, North American geography, botany, mineralogy, astronomy, and ethnology, end quote. Lewis got all this information crammed into his head in a short amount of time. At the same time, Lewis is starting to put together expense reports to bring to Congress. Jefferson is also talking to foreign powers. Jefferson spoke to Carlos Martinez de Rujo. Man, I hate my inability to pronounce foreign names. That's just my own my own dang fault. Anyway, Martinez is the Spanish minister to the United States. He made it very clear to Jefferson that Spain would not take kindly to a U.S. expedition. Spain controlled basically everything west of the Louisiana Purchase up until about Oregon. And they didn't want the U.S. setting foot in there. Now, Jefferson was a strict constructionist, which means he viewed the Constitution very literally. If the Constitution did not explicitly give power to the federal government in the text, Jefferson believed that by default that power would be given to the states. So Jefferson, under his own view, strict constructionist view, does not have the power to authorize this expedition to the Louisiana Purchase. So he tells Congress that the expedition was for commerce. The reason being, the Constitution gives the president and the federal, or the executive branch of the federal government, power to regulate commerce. So it's his workaround of the Constitution and of maybe his own conscience. But he tells Martinez, oh, I'm lying to Congress. This isn't for commerce. This is a literary expedition. I just don't have the power to get that approved by Congress. So I'm telling Congress that it's for commerce, which even nowadays, that sounds very flimsy. And of course, Martinez did not at all believe it. Jefferson assured Martinez the expedition was simply to, quote, fill the map, which would benefit benefit Spain as well as the United States. Martinez, no. He told Jefferson in no uncertain terms that Spain would not take kindly to a U.S. expedition on soil controlled by Spain. Obviously, it did not stop us. Stop us. Stop the United States. We'll get to that. But when all this is happening, Lewis is figuring out the proposed costs of the expedition based on one officer and about 10 to 12 soldiers. He comes up with a number of $2,500 exactly, with $696 being allocated for, quote, Indian presence as the largest sum of that $2,500. Jefferson put a request in for that amount in his first draft of his annual message to Congress in December of 1802. That was his first draft. He was convinced by his treasury treasury secretary to request to Congress separately. Boy, did I botch that. He is convinced by his treasury secretary to submit the request to Congress separate from his annual draft. So he did so on January 18, 1803. Congress approves the request and Jefferson and Lewis have money allocated to their expedition. Once Congress approves, they basically have cleared the 
biggest hurdle. And Jefferson officially confirms Lewis as the leader of the expedition. And in talking to Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and one of the founding fathers, Jefferson says, quote, Captain Lewis is a brave, prudent, habituated to the woods and familiar with Indian manners and character. He is not regularly educated, but he possesses a great mass of accurate observation on all the subjects of nature which present themselves here and will therefore readily select those only in his new route, which shall be new. He has qualified himself for those observations of longitude and latitude necessary to fix the points of the line he will go over, end quote. So Jefferson had plans for Lewis. He had plans for him to go to Philadelphia and work with leading scientists of the day to prepare for the expedition. Jefferson had no doubts Lewis could do this as well as keep up with planning the expedition. Lewis was about to become a very busy man, but he also had his detractors. Some of Lewis, excuse me, some of Jefferson's advisors saw Lewis as a bit of a risk taker and not educated enough to lead the expedition. And they told Jefferson so. Jefferson never wavered. Lewis was his man through and through, and it stayed that way unequivocally. So Congress approves. Jefferson started sending letters to scientist friends looking for advice as well as educational help for Lewis. And Jefferson made it clear in his letters that this advice would be freely given and they would help Jefferson and Lewis at no cost to the federal government, which kind of made me laugh a little bit. Lewis studied from January to around mid-March. He had practical lessons in using the sextant, which is used to determine latitude and longitude, as well as studying maps. Albert Gallatin, Treasury Secretary, and a very serious map collector, was very helpful as well. He had a special map made up for Lewis. It showed the continent from the Pacific Coast to the Mississippi River. Obviously, there were some wild guesses on this map, specifically about what the Rockies would be like. The map only had three certain points on it. Latitude and longitude of the mouth of the Columbia, St. Louis, and of the Mandan villages, which is information that they had got from British fur traders. Not a lot to go on. Jefferson was serious when he said the expedition is to fill the map, because there was nothing for sure on this map. Fortunately for Lewis, he knew just about everything there was to know about the Missouri River and what was to the west. Unfortunately for Lewis, everything there was to know is still a very small amount of information. Anything west of the Mandan villages at about Bismarck, North Dakota was unknown territory. Scientists couldn't fill the map until someone had, quote, walked across the land taking measurements, providing description of the flora, fauna, rivers, mountains, and people, not failing to note the commercial and agricultural possibilities, end quote. This journey, the journey to do this, required a, quote, frontiersman expert knowledge combined with an understanding of technology and what it could do to make the passage easier and more fruitful. End quote. Those are quotes from Ambrose's book. So despite his detractors, Meriwether Lewis was quite literally the perfect choice for the leadership of this expedition because he really was a frontiersman's frontiersman. He had expert knowledge, but he also had spent so much time learning 
that he became very proficient in the use of technology and all of the different map making technologies and techniques as well as observation to quite literally fill the map. He was perfect for this. Now Jefferson and Lewis are both planning the expedition, but they're planning it on different levels. Jefferson is planning for the overarching goals of the expedition. According to Jefferson, quote, he wanted he wanted to, quote, excuse me, combine scientific, commercial, and agricultural concerns with geographical discovery and nation building, end quote. Meanwhile, Lewis has to deal with the nitty-gritty of how to actually pull this whole thing off. He's got to figure out how many men would accompany the expedition, the route up the Missouri River, what was needed to cross the Rockies, and what they needed to get to the Pacific, and maybe even more importantly than getting to the Pacific, they needed to figure out how to get back. In mid-March, Lewis goes to Harper's Ferry, which is the location of the U.S. Army's arsenal. And Lewis had a, a letter from the Secretary of War to get ammunition and weapons. That letter said, quote, You will be pleased to make such arms and ironwork as requested by the bearer, Captain Meriwether Lewis, and to have them completed with the least possible delay, end quote. So Lewis from Harper's Ferry gets 15 muzzle-loading flintlock long-barreled rifles, which are known as the Kentucky Rifle, but more properly actually should be called Pennsylvania Rifles. They're your quintessential frontiersman weapon. They are, without a doubt, the most essential supply that Lewis can possibly have. Without these Pennsylvania-slash-Kentucky rifles, the expedition could not happen. They provided food, self-defense, and they were incredibly reliable. They were the most dependable rifle on the market at that point. They were the, what they called the Model 1803, which they could use to deliver a lead slug accurately and with enough force to kill a deer at about 100 yards. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but an expert could get off two shots in a minute, which, at the time, was high technology. During this time, Lewis also wrote a letter to the commander at Southwest Post asking for suitable volunteers. Volunteers would continue to receive the regular soldiers' pay, and they would also receive land grants. So it could be lucrative for a volunteer. Now, Lewis got a little bit behind schedule during his time as Harper's Ferry. They had certain deadlines. Lewis was not going to hit them because he was overseeing the construction of a special boat that he and Jefferson had dreamed up. It was a collapsible, hide-covered iron boat that was only about 44 pounds to be carried if they needed to go over land, but when they covered it in hides, it could carry up to 1,770 pounds. It was a crucial detail to the trip, and Lewis was very involved in the process of making it, and it got him a bit behind schedule. He gets back on track. April 19, Lewis went to the house of Andrew Ellicott, the leading astronomer and mathematician in the U.S. at that time, and Lewis was there to learn and practice celestial observation. And it was also at Lancaster, where Ellicott lived, that Lewis picked up some more guns. Lewis begins to think maybe a dozen men is not going to be large enough. That's why he gets a few more guns at Lancaster, so that if he does take more men, he'll have supplies for them. And it was around this time as well that it seems that Lewis made the decision that the expedition needed another officer. There's no 
evidence to suggest if Lewis had talked to or written to Jefferson about this idea, but it does seem a little bit crazy to think that Jefferson or Lewis wouldn't have at least run this by Jefferson. But regardless, we don't have any record of that. So Lewis studied with Ellicott until May 7, learned the use of the sextant, the chronometer, which is a timepiece designed to keep time with greater accuracy despite external forces, and other instruments that go along with celestial observation and longitude and latitude. Lewis spent most of May and early June in Philadelphia buying supplies, and here is a quote that I got from Ambrose's book again. Ambrose bases quote off of Lewis's journal, and it's a sampling of what he purchased for supplies. Quote, here with a sampling of the items he purchased. Six papers of ink powder, sets of pencils, crayons, 200 pounds of best rifle powder, and 400 pounds of lead. Four gross fishing hooks assorted, 25 axes, woolen overalls, and other clothing items, including 30 yards common flannel, 100 flints, 30 steels for striking or making fire, six large needles, and six dozen large awls, three bushels of salt, end quote. He also was able to obtain oilskin bags to protect certain instruments. He got mosquito netting and field tables, multi-purpose sheets of oiled linen that were 8 by 12 feet that could be used as tents or even sails. And he also pr purchased presents for the American Indians. Five pounds of white glass beads, 20 pounds of red beads, scissors, 144 of them, brass thimbles, 288, sewing thread, silk, paint and vermilion, knives, armbands, ear trinkets. These were called presents, but they weren't actually presents. They were trading items that they could use with the different tribes that they would run into. Now, preparation, as you can probably clearly see, was not an easy task. Lewis was under a lot of pressure. He's holding up under it marvelously, but still under a lot of pressure. Paul Russell Cutright, a Lewis and Clark scholar, says, quote, It was no small task to anticipate all that he would need in the way of arms, food, clothing, camping, paraphernalia, scientific instruments, and Indian presence for a party of a still undetermined size that for an indefinite period of time would be out of touch with normal supply sources, end quote. So you can see from that quote, it's not just the supplies, it's that there's so many unknowns. How do you plan for things you don't even know you have to plan for. Lewis did amazing. Brilliant planner. You'll see as the episode continues and into the next episode especially, this expedition should never have succeeded as well as it did, and a lot of it comes down to Lewis's meticulous preparation and leadership. This whole thing is a triumph. Triumph for the United States, but also for Lewis. Now, Lewis, after the expedition, he goes through all of the things, all of the supplies beforehand, and then afterward, we can, of course, look back and say, okay, what did Lewis not prepare as well as he should have? So there were some things that the expedition did run out of. So we're looking ahead here. None of the things that the expedition ran out of were critical to the success of the expedition. They ran out of things like tobacco and whiskey. Kind of a bummer for the men on the expedition. Not important to the success of the expedition. 
At the end of the expedition, they had enough powder and lead and rifles to be able to repeat the whole expedition over again. So the majorly important supplies Lewis planned planned well and had plenty of leftovers. Lewis had even thought ahead. This was brilliant to me. This was just, I would have never thought of something like this. And it was such a cool idea. Lewis was so well prepared that he had special lead canisters made to hold powder for the rifles. And those canisters were the exact size that if they were melted down and made into balls for the rifles, they were melted down to be the exact number of balls that would shoot with the powder that the canister held. So it's just incredible amount of forethought with that. You don't want to run out of ammunition? Okay, we'll make the exact amount of ammunition we need for the powder that's in this canister, and we'll make that ammunition out of the canister. Genius. Brilliant. Lewis also brought an incredible amount of ink, which you would think not crucial to the expedition, but in fact, based on the... the Oh, man, I'm losing my train of thought again. The goals of the expedition. Goals. That's, yeah, that's the word I can't think of. Good gravy. The easiest word there is. Based on the goals of the expedition, Lewis needed to make a ton of observations. He needed to record everything that he saw. He needed to draw maps. He needed to write down flora and fauna and his own observations. He needed to record things, which means he needed ink. If the option, if the expedition was going to be a success, you needed write-in materials, and you needed to have enough writing materials to cover the entire journey. Lewis did that. Now, Lewis consulted with Dr. Benjamin Rush. He is, as I said earlier, signer of the Declaration of Independence, also the most famous doctor in the United States. Some of the advice that Dr. Rush gave to Lewis was to rest in a horizontal position, as in if they had a strenuous day, Lie down and sleep. Don't rest up against a tree. Don't sit up and just sit around a campfire. Lie horizontal and rest. It's the best way to recover. It's pretty good advice, honestly. Uh, Not such good advice was the purge pills, which Dr. Rush was a big fan of. They also called them thunderclap pills, I think they said. (laughs) Basically, you take this pill and you're going to shit. And you're going to shit a lot. Uh, They also provide, Dr. Rush also has provided Lewis with a list of medical supplies and medicine needed. And Lewis spent some time with Dr. Benjamin Smith Barton, author of the first textbook on botany and also a professor. He taught Lewis how to preserve specimens, plants, birds, animal skins, all that kind of stuff. He taught Lewis about labeling and why it was important. And he taught the technical language of botany to describe plants and animals. Lewis also spent a considerable amount of time with Dr. Casper Wistar, author of the first American textbook on anatomy. Now, in June of 1803, Lewis got to Washington and went over the instructions with Jefferson and advisors. They take into account all the different views from the advisors. They put together a final draft of the instruction. Jefferson wrote, quote, The object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and such principal stream of it as, by its course in communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean, whether the Columbia 
Oregon, Colorado, or any other river may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purpose of commerce. Basically, find the best way to get to the Pacific Ocean. Jefferson wanted information on routes used by British traders. He wanted suggestions on how the U.S. could take over the fur trade from the British. And he also instructed Lewis to make good maps. Longitude, latitude, remarkable points, rivers, mouths of rivers, rapids, islands, everything. Just literally record everything. Learn as much as possible about the Native American tribes that they came in contact with. They wanted to know the names, the numbers, possessions, relationships with other tribes, languages, traditions, occupations. Were they hunter-gatherers? Were they more agricultural? What food did they eat? What customs did they have? What articles of commerce did they have? I mean, the amount of information that Lewis was supposed to gather was just incredible. He did a fantastic job of it, don't get me wrong, but just so much was expected of him. Jefferson told Lewis to treat the American Indians as friendly as the American Indians treated them. Invite some to Washington to meet with Jefferson. That was another goal get them to come to Washington to meet their, quote, great father. And on the flip side of that, Jefferson told them, be friendly, but if you're attacked, make sure that you protect yourselves. The expedition, in order to be successful, you have to survive. So don't, don't just run away. Protect yourself if you have to. Now, if a larger force stopped the expedition... Jefferson gave them instructions to return with the information they had already gathered and they could potentially start the expedition over knowing some information that might help them in the future. Learn from their mistakes, so to speak. But if they died, all information would be lost, so just don't die. Protect yourself if you can. Run away if you can't. Jefferson also authorized Lewis to pick his successor if some sickness or accident led to his death. When Lewis reached the Pacific Ocean, his instructions were to find a European trading vessel and sail back. Or, if not sail back himself, pick some men, send the journal back with the two men, and then take an overland route back the way they came. But one way or the other, get the information to... Jefferson. Lewis was given commander-in-chief responsibilities in the field. Obviously, this was a time when communication was letters delivered by men on pony at best, and it's very slow. Lewis gets to make all the decisions in the field. He is in sole command at this point. We'll get to that. He gets to make the decisions, and his word is final. Jefferson also wanted to know about flora and fauna, plants and animals, especially those not known in the current known U.S. He wanted to know about dinosaur bones, volcanoes, minerals, but especially limestone, pit coal, and salt. June 29, Secretary of War Henry Dearborn ordered the Army Paymaster to give Lewis $554, quote, being six months' pay for one lieutenant, one sergeant, one corporal, and 10 privates, end quote. So clearly, Lewis had already gotten approval to add another officer, which is a good thing, because on June 19, 10 days beforehand, Lewis had already written to William Clark. 
Now, William Clark and Meriwether Lewis, obviously nowadays, they are known as one of the greatest bromances in the history of the world. A great example of friendship and adventure. But in this period of time, they didn't know each other well. They were not fast friends. They were acquainted, but that's about it. Clark was an excellent choice for Lewis to write to. Clark's strengths were in areas that Lewis was weak, and vice versa. So Clark was a better waterman. They were going to be spending a lot of time on rivers. He was better in the water. He was better at terrestrial surveying. And more importantly than their strengths and weaknesses, Clark and Lewis trusted each other implicitly. They knew enough about each other to have absolute trust in each other. So it really is an extraordinary turn of events that Lewis told Clark that he would be granted a captain's commission. Most men in this situation do not give up that type of power. Lewis had commander-in-chief responsibilities. He was in charge of the entire expedition, an expedition that was essential to the growth of the United States and, as we know now, has gone down in history as one of the greatest expeditions in the North American continent. It's greatest, one of the greatest expeditions in exploration in the world. And he was in control. And he was under no responsibility to give up any of that control. And yet, he, without being prompted in any way, writes a letter to William Clark and offers him co-command, equal command. That's how much he trusted Clark. Now, one thing that should be pointed out is when Dearborn gave a letter to the paymaster, he only authorized the pay of a lieutenant, not another commander. Lewis and Jefferson apparently missed this. So, despite not being a granted a captain commission, Clark was a lieutenant throughout the entire expedition. Lewis and Clark hid this from the men. They always referred to each other as captain, and they always acted as co-command. In no way, shape, or form was William Clark a subordinate. It is not the Lewis expedition. It is the Lewis and Clark expedition. July 2. It's a bit later than anticipated. Lewis had basically finished his preparations. He's getting ready to set off for Pittsburgh, which is going to be basically the launching point. And this is also the day that he receives authorization to select up to 12 non-commissioned officers from garrisons at the post's at Massac and Kakaskia. Basically, Dearborn gave Lewis permission to raid these posts and take the best men, and the commanders of the post couldn't stop him. Captains at the post didn't post <laughs> that's not really Canadian. Captains at these posts didn't really have a choice. If Lewis wanted the men and the men wanted to volunteer, they were gone. Captain Russell Bissell at Kaskaskia was also ordered to provide Lewis with a boat, a sergeant, and eight men to row Lewis's baggage to the winter quarters on the Missouri River, and then return. July 4, 1803, newspapers finally reported that Napoleon had sold the entirety of Louisiana to the United States. The U.S. is obviously very happy, but France and Napoleon were also incredibly pleased that this had become official. Napoleon knew that he could not stop the U.S. from eventually occupying the Louisiana Territory, so he might as well sell it to him so at least he gets some money out of it. One way or the other, he's going to lose it. Might as well get some money. He also said, quote, The sale assures forever the power of the United States 
and I have given England a rival who, sooner or later, will humble her pride. End quote. Napoleon was devious. You've got to give him that. He's a great leader. One way or the other, whatever you think about him, he, uh, he knew what he was doing. For Lewis, it was very much a stress-relieving newspaper article because it stopped him from meddling in foreign affairs for at least a good chunk of the journey. He would be in U.S. territory all the way up to the Rocky Mountains, which really took a lot of stress off of him. And it was basically a huge human interest piece at this point. When it was announced that the United States had purchased the Louisiana Purchase, it was suddenly very interesting to the U.S. because, hey, this is U.S. territory, now let's find out about it. When it was foreign territory, less interest. When it's U.S. territory, suddenly the United States citizenship or citizenry is invested. Because the United States had now purchased and was in control of the Louisiana Territory, Lewis would also be the one to inform the American Indian tribes that they were no longer French or Spanish, or I should say that they were no longer on French or Spanish territory, but instead they were on U.S. territory and that Jefferson was the great father now. That duty fell to Lewis. Now, as mentioned earlier, no one exactly knew where the boundaries of the Louisiana Territory were, Napoleon sold it, quote, with the same extent that it now has in the hands of Spain and that it had when France possessed it, end quote. General consensus at the time was that it extended from the Gulf of Mexico to the northernmost tributary of the Missouri River and the Mississippi River to the Continental Divide. But that vague language is unhelpful because nobody actually knew what the northern extent of the territory was. Nobody knew what the northernmost tributary of the Missouri was. No American, no Spaniard, no Frenchman, no Briton knew where that was. So Jefferson, of course, in his mind thinking, hey, if I can find how far north it goes, I just add more territory to the United States. He urged Lewis to go explore the northern tributaries. Earlier in his formal instructions, he had said, explore south. Now he's saying, go north. Further north you can go, the more territory we can add to the United States. July 5, Lewis starts out for Pittsburgh. In doing so, he is making his first westward steps that would eventually end at the Pacific if the journey went well. Lewis learned at Fredericktown, which is currently Frederick, Maryland, that the supplies he had sent on had passed through. That relieved some stress. Everything's going according to plan. However, the driver had decided that the rifles and the other arms were too heavy and left them at Harper's Ferry, so Lewis had to hire a teamster to get to Harper's Ferry and get the guns to Pittsburgh. He reaches Pittsburgh on July 15 and is immensely disappointed because the boat that was supposed to be built to get the journey started on the Ohio River, this was not the collapsible boat, if I remember correctly, it's a different boat, was not completed by July 20. It was supposed to be completed by July 20, according to the contractor. He's not even close to being done. It's clearly a pipe dream. July 29, Lewis gets some very long-awaited news. A letter from Clark accepting Lewis's offer. He's ecstatic. In follow-up 
Letters Clark told Lewis, tells Lewis that he is being pestered by young men who want to join up. Lewis shares this sentiment and said he was experiencing the same. And now Lewis and Clark have the option to be selective and only take the very best, which is good news for the expedition, of course. Boat Builder is still lagging behind. He is a bit of a drunk. He is not working with the diligence that Lewis is expecting. He is getting further and further behind schedule. And Lewis accuses him of, quote, unpardonable negligence, end quote. Now, it's not a small project. This is a boat that was essential to the beginning part of the journey. And it would get them all the way to their winter camp. It was 55 feet long, 8 feet wide at mid, and had a shallow draft, which is good for rivers, of course. It had a 32-foot mast that was joined, jointed, excuse me, so that it could be folded down, lowered, uh, and put back up when needed. And it supported a large square sail and a foresail. It had a hold that was 31 feet and could carry a cargo of about 12 tons. And across the deck were 11 benches that were 3 feet long that could be used by oarmen. It could be propelled four different ways. Rowing, sailing, pushing, or pulling. Lewis had hoped to be going by July 20 or at the latest by August 1. Unfortunately, with the delay from the boat builder was getting later and later, so anxious was Lewis to get moving that the last nail was put into the boat at 7 a.m. on August 31. Lewis had the entire boat loaded with the supplies by 10 a.m. the same day. He shipped some other supplies to Wheeling and bought a pirogue to carry more so that the main boat was lighter because the delay had caused him to leave at a time when the river was lower and therefore less passable, let's put it that way. August 31, Lewis finally has the boat and is on his way. The journey is officially starting. And that's what we're going to get into more next episode. The beginning of the episode, the beginning of the journey, the winter camp. We're going to talk about some of the men that joined up, all that they experienced as they crossed the entire North American continent, all the way to Pacific and back. That's going to be a fun episode. It's going to be crammed full of information. Hopefully it's not an incredibly long episode. I will do my best to keep it within reasonable time frames. But going to have to wait till next month. I am Brett Biosma. I'm your host of the Curiosity Chronicles. And I hope that you stay curious.